But Lord God, we thank you so much for Mark, for his work, for the students on these 22 campuses, and we pray that you would just expand their influence and give them inroads into the other campuses so that your gospel can be made fully known to all these 500,000 students. How amazing. And Lord, as we look forward to the fall, I know there are so many preparations that are being done to uh, put together um, literature, to plan outreach events, to get Bibles together, to put Bible studies together, uh, making plans for who's going to be doing discipleship and leading various small groups and Bible studies. We just ask that you would bless uh, those ministries. We want to pray especially for Montclair State since it's right here, and we pray that you would bless their ministry and that they would see a real fruitful harvest for the kingdom this fall. We also want to give you great praise this morning, God, for our vacation Bible school that we had this week here at church, and you brought over 60 children um, and their parents and their families to come and to participate, to uh, make new friends, and especially to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you, Lord Jesus, can change our lives and save us from our sins and can save us for eternity. And we pray that your gospel would just continue to work in the hearts of people who've heard it. We thank you for your answered prayers that you've given to us. You made the weather just perfect for us. You kept everyone safe, and, uh, and you made your gospel clear in the minds and hearts of so many. We thank you for your work, and we pray this morning um, that the word of life that we're going to be looking at, that you, Lord Jesus, would be uh, just shine in our, in our hearts and our minds as we look at the scriptures. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of the gospel of Luke this morning. And if you remember, we, last Sunday we started the most important part of the story, and that's when it comes to Jesus' last week on earth, and he is eventually going to go to his cross. And as Luke told the story to us, he opened up the story very ominously because he gives us this picture of all these religious leaders and Judas, the betrayer, and Satan, the devil, all working to bring about the dawn, downfall of Jesus. Well, this Sunday in our passage, we're going to see all of this escalate some more, and, uh, and Luke is going to keep our eye very closely on Satan and Jesus and the role that they played. But we're also going to learn, as we see Jesus interact here, that there's opposition coming from more than just these places. We see opposition coming from within the religious bodies. We see opposition can even come from ourselves toward Christ. It comes from the world, of course, and all the authorities. I mean, quite simply, as Jesus finishes out his life on this earth, opposition comes from everywhere. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 21, or you can follow along with the text that's printed for you in your bulletin. So we're at the middle of the story, and it says, Jesus says, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, who one who reclines at table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. Now, we're in the middle of the Passover celebration that Jesus is eating with his disciples. And the opposition is going to escalate very quickly. I mean, within just a matter of hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, abused, and then crucified by noon the next day. And on the third day, though, he would rise from the dead and grant power to his church. And so now, in this meal and part of this time, Jesus is calling his church to wage a spiritual war for the gospel, and he promises victory and glory. And we should know that what happened to Jesus himself during this time frame is what's going to happen to us as followers of his as well. And so we should be prepared. We should be prepared for four things we see in our passage this morning. To be prepared for betrayals. To be prepared for temptations. To be prepared for denials. To be prepared for persecutions because opposition to the gospel and to Jesus Christ is going to come from everywhere. And being prepared is part of winning the battle. The being prepared for being able to need to live a holy life and to minister the gospel faithfully to those in front of us. Well, let's look at our passage a little more closely now. So first of all, we should be prepared for betrayals. And we read this right away that they're eating dinner, the Passover meal. In verse 21 it says, Behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it's been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You notice how Luke stresses the betrayal of Judas here in this story? I mean, Judas is participating in the meal as a friend. I mean, notice even the emphasis, his hand is with me on the table. And not only was it just a meal, but it was the Passover, and even more than that, it was the Lord's Supper that was being instituted. And this fulfills Psalms 41.9, which says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, you know, it's not clear exactly when Judas left the meal, because we know he had some things to do, which we'll get to in a moment. But he could have left, you know, whether he left after the third cup. Remember, there, I talked about four cups uh, uh, were the outline of the meal, whether he left toward the end or perhaps earlier. 
But in John's gospel, it says, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And John's emphasis is both not only that it was physically dark, but that it was a spiritually dark moment now. And Jesus makes it clear that even in the midst of this, God's in control over all of these circumstances. He's sovereign over the betrayal even, and that nonetheless, the perpetrator is fully responsible for his actions. Peter would preach just similarly in Pentecost when in Acts chapter 2, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So while God is overseeing this, everyone is fully responsible for their actions, including Judas. And so after Jesus, of course, says something like this, what do you think the rest of the disciples are thinking? They're like, well, who could this be? And so they start wondering. In verse 23, they began to question one another as to which of them could be the one who was going to do this. So they're, they're filled with discontent. They're confused. A prediction of a betrayer in the room. And they discuss amongst themselves, well, who could this be? Probably questioning each other, to how loyal to Jesus are you really? In other accounts of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all talk about all these things. In the other accounts, we have them even protesting, maybe even doing some soul-searching on their own and saying, surely not I, Lord. And so you see, in humility, each one hopes that it's not he but then in loyalty, each one declares that it's not. It's interesting that they don't suspect anyone in particular at this point. They don't ask outright, well, is it Judas? But this betrayal goes very deep because you see Judas is playing the same game. He's playing a game with them. And he's even in on this discussion and um, having already half betrayed Jesus... He acts as if he too wonders who it could be and protests his own innocence. In Matthew 26, it's recorded, Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been bored. And then Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You've said so. And Luke, you see, keeps the presentation very, very short and to the point. But John, in his writings, fills it out even more for us. In John 13, we read, Then after he had taken the morsel, speaking of Judas, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, go do quickly. No one at the table now knew why he said this to him. Some thought it's because Jesus kept the money bag that Jesus was telling him, Go buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So as Jesus' disciples, we too should be prepared for betrayals, uh, deep ones even. Uh, they almost always are. I mean, that's the definition of a betrayal. But Jesus calls his church through this passage, through the writings of Luke here, to wage the spiritual war, the battle that we fight for the gospel, for Jesus' glory, and he promises us that we will gain victory eventually. So betrayal is part of that spiritual warfare that we're in. So we really shouldn't be discouraged 
that much when we see these things take place. Now, perhaps the most interesting part, you probably already saw it and thought about it for yourself, is like where this discussion just goes right away. I mean, Jesus is talking about something intensely heavy here, and then their questioning of one another leads them to assert which one of them is actually the greatest in the room. That's crazy that they would go from this discussion of betrayal to all of a sudden trying to determine who is the greatest amongst them. So, you know, we also have to be prepared for temptations that come even from within, our, <clears throat> within ourselves. It's not just the betrayers on the outside, but it can even come from the inside. And so, in verses 24 to 27, we have this determination of what is greatness, and there's reward that's given in 28 to 30. And so, a dispute arose among them as to which would be regarded as the greatest. And they've had a lot of these disputes, by the way, at this point. Um, who's the greatest? And he said to them, well, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. You see, since the disciples don't think that any one of them, as they're talking, could really be the betrayer, they start changing the topic about, well, who's actually the greatest one in the room? And uh, again, as I mentioned, they've had this discussion uh, many times before in their travelings with Jesus over the last couple of years, but it's a really strange time for such a discussion. I mean, Jesus, in just a matter of hours, is going to die on the cross for their sins and the sins of the world. So he interrupts their discussion with a discussion about worldly leadership in contrast to what is godly greatness. You see, worldly leaders around the world in all societies and all times and various cultures, they tend to lord it over others, such as the Romans in their own time that they would know. And they would tend to aggrandize themselves, right? And, and have titles like benefactor. I mean, even the great tyrants like Augustus and Nero, they would give gifts, but those gifts always had their names attached to them. So you know where it came from. But then he says, but you in contrast shouldn't act in such a manner, but rather should just seek out the lowest position, the position of least respect is whether it's the youngest or the servant, and godly leaders follow, and godly people follow the pattern of Jesus here. Now, in the climax of his comments here, he puts forth this analogy that really reflects what's going on at the moment. Sometimes we miss it, what he's saying here. He says, well, who, who really is the most important in the room, person in the room? You know, if you're at a dinner party, well, is it, it's the wealthy guest, right? It's not, it's not the servant. And he's talking about himself because he is the most important person in the room. He is the son of God who came from glory to eat dinner with these mere human servants. And then what transpires? Well, he, the great one, is the one who serves them. And so we wonder, because so many of us already know the story that there was a foot washing that took place that night. We don't know exactly when it occurred. Did it occur at the very beginning? And so at this point in the meal, it just shows how dense these disciples are. Or is it actually happening right now in the story? Most scholars think so after Judas has left the room. 
And so let me just remind you from the account in John 13, what took place then here. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And jumping down to the end of the story, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should also do as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you do these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then he talks about the reward that would come to them, the reward of true greatness in verses 28 to 30, when he says, you are those who stayed with me in my trials, speaking to just them without Judas in the room, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Luke alone is the one who records these positive comments for us, and Jesus gives, them a, gives us a glimpse of their future. They would become our apostles. They would be the ones who would have authority over the church. They would be the ones who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would write Scripture, the New Testament, for us. Those who have stayed with him in his trials, he says. It's a commendation to those 11 and the exclusion of Judas. And Jesus assures them that they would eventually meet those requirements that he just went over in verses 26 to 27. They would get to that point where they would be considered great in the kingdom of God. And he lets them know that they've been assigned positions in the future kingdom by himself and by the Father. It would include fellowship with Jesus and thrones of authority. And of course, he's speaking about the ultimate banquet in heavenly glory, but also the, in their earthly lives, in their lifetime, they would become the apostles of the church, of the new people of God. And then at the very end, when judgment comes, they would reign in power with him. Well, like the apostles in our passage, we have to be prepared for temptations too, because you know, it's not just them who are tempted to think too highly of themselves. I mean, we should all be self-aware enough to know that those temptations come into our lives as well. And we're tempted to think too much about ourselves. And that can be the root of so many other problems. One of the greatest areas of temptation is simply that, that we're better than other people. And ultimately what we're saying is that we're really better than Jesus because he served us. So self-seeking is not supposed to be a pattern of our relationships. And Jesus sets the supreme example, not just by washing their feet, but by looking forward to what he would do on that cross when he offered his life in our place. And so here Jesus calls his church to wage that spiritual war, and he promises victory and, victory and glory over the temptations. That's part of spiritual warfare too, is dealing with temptations in our own lives. And then the, the vanity of this whole discussion about status and greatness now turns to 
Peter's denials. So we should be prepared for denials too. Knowing how susceptible we are to temptations, I hope we all know somewhat of our frailties, and the story continues, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, only Luke here notes that this cosmic battle with the evil one, with Satan, continues to rage and even assaults Peter himself. I mean, Satan demands, actually in the text here, the, the, the you is plural. So he's actually demanding to sift all of the disciples, but in particular, Peter. Just as how he singled out Job. Asserting that, you know, somebody's going to fail and have their faith destroyed and be turned to chaff. And God, in his supreme wisdom, grants it even regarding Peter to be the prime target as the leader of the apostles. Well, it's true. They would all be scattered. All of these disciples would leave Jesus in the hour of his death. Peter would be the one that would even deny that he knew the Lord. Luke alone is the one that emphasizes that, that he even knew him three times before the morning. But still, Jesus assures Peter that he's going to pray for him and that his power is stronger than Satan's. Peter wouldn't fully and finally fail. His faith would just falter under pressure and not fully give out. He would return in repentance and strengthen the others who had also scattered and failed in their faith. And that same hope is extended to us. The Apostle John would write in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, speaking of evil forces in the world, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So maybe that's even you this morning, where you feel like you've really failed and abandoned the Lord Jesus, and you're here hoping to be close to him again. Well, there's encouragement and power here that God promises restoration if we repent and come back to him in faith. But then Peter, he, of course, he, he just decries that this is going to happen in verses 33 to 34. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go. I'll go to prison, whatever they're going to do to you. To death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times before morning. Matthew's account fills in all the details with some more of the emotion, actually, of what's going on here. And so in Matthew 26, we read, And when they sung a hymn, they all went out to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus said to them, You're all going to fall away uh, because of me this night, because it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you into Galilee. And then it's probably here where these verses come in, Simon, Simon, behold, the evil one desires to sift you like wheat. And Peter answers, according to Matthew here, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So Peter is really taken aback by the fact that Jesus would predict his failure and rashly asserts the contrary. Well, Peter is filled with good intentions, of course, even though he isn't who he would yet become, really. He would eventually become as strong as he's saying in this passage. You would see that. You can read about that. That's in the next book of Luke. 
That is the book of Acts, where you look in chapters 5 and chapter 12, for example, and you see the strength of Peter. He actually does make it through. Nevertheless, Jesus' prophecy here stands. Before the sunrise, Peter would deny Jesus three times. As I mentioned, even these hurtful words that Luke records, you'll deny that you even know me. So it's important to realize here that it's Peter's overconfidence in his own faith that's going to keep him from watching out properly for himself. Um, That's going to come out, right, the very next episode when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the prophecy will be fulfilled. So we have to be prepared for denials. They're going to come even from ourselves, maybe from our brothers and sisters. Yes, again, Peter would fail, but he would also return. He would strengthen um, his brothers and others who deserted Jesus as the scattered sheep. It all fulfills God's plan to build a very strong apostleship. So we must always be alert knowing ourselves, not being overconfident about our faith. We need to come to know the true measure of our strength and weakness by our temporary failures. And like Peter and the rest, you know, after we return and get strengthened, we can help other people too. And then we know that, and we start to realize after a while of following Jesus that this is really sort of how discipleship works, how growth works, how the spiritual battle plays itself out in our lives, and that we get strength to resist that grows stronger and stronger throughout our lives, and God is really working to gain glory through our lives. And so Jesus here calls his church to wage a spiritual war, the spiritual war, and he promises victory and glory. Failures and denials are just part of it, but so are repentance and recovery. Well, finally, we should also be prepared for persecutions. This section is unique in Luke's gospel in verses 35 to 38. And God always provides, we see, for his mission in verse 35, and then in verses 36 to 38, that there's this final mission that the disciples are going to be sent on and they need to be fully prepared for it. And so the passage begins simply saying, Jesus reminds them of a tour, an evangelistic tour he sent them on earlier. And he says, when I sent you out that time, right, with no money bag or knapsack, did you lack anything? They said nothing. So he's reminding them about that previous mission campaign. One of the circuit missions that he sent them on uh, early on, they weren't supposed to make any special preparations. You might not remember that, but if you look back at the very beginning of Luke, you can see those things. And basically, Jesus is saying at that time, for this trip, I mean, you basically, you know, kiss your family, you know, goodbye, you're going to be gone for a couple weeks, and come with me, and we're going to go on this mission. And then he would be training them. And God provided everything they needed throughout that whole time frame. And that was their very first lesson that when doing the mission that God would send them on, he would provide for all of their needs. And they needed to be focused on the mission and not worried so much about the needs in their lives. And that would actually strengthen them for the future. And so we're at this point in Luke's gospel where there are five tours, evangelistic tours. We're at the fifth one now. So the first one was Jesus going out alone. And you see that in chapter 4. The second mission in Luke's gospel, is when Jesus goes out with the twelve, and some others, and some supporting women. You see that in chapter 8. The third tour is when he sends out the twelve. 
in chapter 9 on a very limited short-term trip. And then in chapter 10, the fourth tour in Luke's gospel is when the 72 get sent out on a much larger scale. And so as you see, as you can trace these things in the gospel of Luke, what is Jesus doing with his disciples? He's training the 12 to be the apostles, to be missionaries. And so we get to the final tour, which would be and will be the tour of the world, if you will, for every people group. So flip over in your Bibles to the very end of the book. Chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. 24:44. We'll just read a few verses. <clears throat> so here we're at the end of the gospel account. <clears throat> and then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That would be the final mission. And God's going to continue to meet all their needs, even with that much larger mission that they would be sent upon. However, full preparations are necessary this time, because this isn't just going to be a side trip at this point, once Jesus ascends to glory. So then we read in verse 36, and he said to them, but now, because in contrast to the previous trip, he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. So their new mission as apostles leading the church on mission would be much greater. The honor, the glory would be greater. But so would the hostilities, and they had to be fully prepared for it. They're to make full provision, whatever's necessary, money, supplies, even make sure they get a sword. And the sword is singled out as important here and symbolic, because the future would be filled with terrible hostilities. Jesus was speaking way beyond the literal, in a metaphor, to make sure that they were fully spiritually prepared. Don't miss that, because that's what the disciples missed at the time. Yes, they're going to need money, they're going to need all sorts of supplies, and God's going to work that out by various means. But the sword here symbolizes the spiritual warfare that they're going to encounter and battle through in the future. And more than physically, they have to be prepared spiritually by prayer and by faith. And such important preparations are necessary because we're going to see in the very next episode in the Garden of Gethsemane that they fail to understand what Jesus is talking about and they use a real sword and we find that they were sleeping instead of praying. And then we find them fleeing in fear. Obviously, Jesus isn't advocating that his apostles or his church take up arms against their enemies to somehow spread the gospel by force. I mean, they would actually try that in a, in a few verses from now. If you look in verse 49 in chapter 22 and you go down to that section, 
And when those who were around him saw what would follow, because Jesus is going to be arrested here soon, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then when you read through the book of Acts, you see the exact opposite happening. You see the church willingly suffering to spread the gospel. Jesus himself would not even defend himself, but lay down his life. And so he quotes here, the scripture must be fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah 53, 12 about himself as the suffering servant. He'd be laying down his life. That's why he came, to die for sinners like you and me. And hopefully you've believed in him and put your trust in him, that his cross can pay the penalty for all of your sins and that his life and resurrection can be yours. You know, if Jesus was treated as a criminal, the apostles are going to be treated as criminals. The church is going to be treated the same way, even you and me. Well, verse 38 shows the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. And they said, look, Lord, we got two swords. And you think, these people are really crazy because what are 12 guys with two swords going to do with a bunch of Roman soldiers? I mean, it's pretty obvious who's going to win that battle. But you see, they don't, they're not even prepared spiritually for what's going to be happening. And that's why Jesus basically says, idiomatically here in our language, well, that's enough of that. That's what he's saying. It's enough. Be prepared for the persecutions. There have been many, and there's going to be many more. Again, this is a call to war by Jesus, but it's a spiritual war. Not calling us to a real war. We have to be ready to fight with spiritual weapons and suffer in our bodies for the gospel. We speak the truth. We live righteousness. And we're always ready with the gospel. We meet every situation with faith and confidence and speak clearly the word of God to people. And we pray all the time about everything. Staying alert and persevere to the very end. It's like the Apostle Paul would teach in 2 Corinthians 10 when he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but actually have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take to captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. So you see in our passage that we're looking at this morning and through all of these examples, these four things we've been looking at, Jesus is calling his church to wage a spiritual war. And he's promising that there's going to be victory and glory at the end and persecutions. Well, that too is a part of the spiritual war that we're in. And so we see this morning opposition to Jesus and the gospel comes from everywhere. And as we might expect, we read the story, well, of course opposition is going to come from Satan. And yet I hope we understand that he's still intensely at work. And he's very good at what he does. And of course, as we read the story of the gospel through Luke, we knew Judas would be a problem all along, right? It's just now coming out. I hope we realize that, you know, there have been others that are followed in Judas's footsteps and that we're wise to people who follow in this kind of a path. And we should, as we look at our episodes this morning, we should also realize, too, that well, even we ourselves can be the problem. You know, individually, 
or even as a church. Churches can be problems. They can be hindrances. And I hope that we all see that humility and a stronger faith than whatever we currently have, that's what we need. We still need more. And finally, we also see from our passage, too, that you know, the world and its leaders are opposed to Jesus Christ. But yet, I hope we realize at the same time that the world is opposed to the gospel and to Jesus Christ and to us, at the same time, those very same people are our mission field. How strange. So knowing what happened to Jesus himself and his closest followers, we should be prepared for betrayals, for temptations, for denials, for persecutions. That's what spiritual warfare is all about. And as we often have a saying, you know, preparation's half the battle. That's why the Apostle Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, these words that you know so well. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let me pray for us. Lord God, our hearts echo these words of the Apostle Paul, and we want to be prepared. And we will learn preparation, and we look forward to learning it from the story of the gospel according to Luke, your scriptures. But as this passage in Ephesians 6 continues, we know that this preparation, this armor, involves the belt of truth, constantly having ourselves in the Word of God to know the truth, to live the truth, and to be able to battle against falsities in our own minds and from people who bring them to us. That we are to take up the breastplate of righteousness, of course being the very righteousness of Christ that we trust in, but a life then that gets worked out through the Holy Spirit in our own selves as we reflect being a new creature in Jesus Christ. That we're ready with the gospel of peace, that we take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of these things will strengthen us and prepare us for the battles ahead in our lives. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified in us as disciples of yours, Lord Jesus. And by your grace, we will. And we'll wage the spiritual war, and we'll gain victory and glory, all to the praise of you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.